ask you to think about your attention during an average day. Are you easily distracted? Do you find yourself on autopilot at times? Or maybe you find yourself responding to urgent situations that demand that you're on all day. If you find yourself on autopilot, then know that I definitely relate to you. There was a time in my life when I was pretty much checked out and I found myself not paying attention to my own well-being. It was like I was living without seeing the full color and vibrancy of the world. I was emotionally reactive and just taking things really personally, riding the highs and lows of relationships and events in my personal life. But I knew there was a different way. So I found myself turning towards mindfulness and meditation. At first I was skeptical, but then I started seeing how mindfulness transformed my everyday. It's like someone painted color into the gray parts of my life. I was able to bring ease into difficult relationships. And I started to take a moment to respond thoughtfully rather than react harshly. I was no longer on autopilot. I was fully feeling the moment. Welcome back. I'm Francis Lees, and I want to welcome you to season two of Turning Points, a show about navigating mental health sponsored by Point32 Health. Today, we're talking about the power of our attention. We'll learn how peak performers train their minds to stay at the top of their games, no matter what field they're in. Today's guest is Alex Verdugo, outfielder for the Boston Red Sox. He called us right before a game at Boston's Fenway Park, but he didn't have any pregame jitters. He was remarkably calm and in the moment. We talked about how he finds his focus during the game and how he manages his emotions. Welcome to the Turning Points Podcast. We're so glad to have you on the show, Alex. Can you just introduce yourself and tell our audience a bit about who you are? Um, Alex Verdugo, play for the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> I mean, really just, you know, just a regular person. I got a girl, I got two kids, just out here living my dream and, you know, just trying to better myself every single day and, and make a future for my kids. So and today on the podcast, we're really focusing on the strategies to stay sharp as a high performer, Alex. And as a Boston Red Sox outfielder, you have what many consider, like you just said, like your dream job. You get to wake up, play the game that you love, and just, you know, do what you love the most. But with like being a professional athlete, you know, there's a lot of pressure, right? Um, that I'm sure that you have to you like work through. What can this pressure feel like for you on a day-to-day basis? That is true. There is a lot of pressure in this game. There's a lot of outside noise. It's it's all about how you take it. For me, I was a big like, hey, what are people saying about me? And like you see people tag you, right, on social media, things like that. And like, hey man, you're garbage. And oh, well, I used to just I'd be so mad. But like the thing is, is it's all about how I channeled it, right? You can dwell on it, you can sit on it, and you can really focus on that one comment or that one thing and and let it eat you alive but for me i would sit there at the end of the day like i went through it man like i either struck out i either made an error i did the bad play so it's like for me the older i get it's like man cancel that noise this is a team sport i got nine other guys out there like ready to you know get the job done 
And in a game like this in baseball, which is a very different sport compared to everyone else, because we fail seven out of 10 times and you're like a premier player. You shoot 30% from three, you shoot 30% from the field, like you're probably going to get some hate. You know what I mean? It's a very different sport. Baseball has definitely taught you like, hey, you got to be comfortable with failure in, in some regards because we can do everything right, get the pitch, hit a ball 110 on a line, and it's right at a guy. Well, you're out. You're out. You know, you didn't do anything, but I had a good swing, man. I did it. You're still out. You just got to learn how to calm it down. And I think, you know, a big thing is, is, you know, the teammates, the guys that you have around you, you're, you know, off the field, your friends, your family, they just, they just do a really good job of keeping you cool, calm and collective. And now me having my kids, it separates the field from the game so much, so much easier for me. I used to sit at home, like I said, and dwell on it for hours. And then the next day I woke up, I was refreshed, ready to go. Now it's like 15, 20 minutes after the game, I'm walking outside and I'm, I'm holding my son, you know, and I, I'm seeing my son, like, he don't care if I go 0 for 4 or 4 for 4. Like, that's my boy, and, and he's got the big old smile, four teeth, two in the top, two in the bottom, just looking at his dad, man. So it, it's just like something that it's really helped me kind of separate those two. Your priorities change because then the world becomes a lot bigger, right? It's more than just you in the game. Mental fitness is just as important as the physical fitness. Like, you can be top of your game. If your mindset is always kind of like rocky, that really just throws a lot off track. I would love to learn more about like the strategies that help you kind of stay in that zone, right? I know that part of that is like seeing your kids and understand like things are a lot bigger than you, but what are your go-to strategies to stay at the top of your mental and physical game? Yeah, for me mentally, it's probably the hardest part of this game. Physically, we play 162 games, you know, you're going to be beat up. Like you're going to play with extreme body soreness, aches, strains, whatever it may be. You're going to get through, like play through what you have to. So I think the biggest thing of this game is mentally. You have to lock it in. Like you said, you can't be rocky. Like you can't be like one foot in, one foot out of anything. You've got to like really mentally be locked in and on like what your goal is. Like for me, if I'm locked in mentally, that means I understand my goal. Growing up, I was very hard on myself, like very, very hard on myself. And the mental talk probably wasn't the best for me. It was very negative towards myself. So for me at that time, I needed to get on myself, right? I needed to like, wake up, man. Like, let's go. You're just going through the motions, like lock it in. Let's go. And I felt like by me doing that, I was able to flip a page or restart my, like who I am as a person. It's like that confidence that like, hey bro, like I'm gonna go get them. Like, right, I'm like, when I'm in the box, like, like that's my box, right? Like you gotta throw it to me. Like I don't have to hit your pitch. Like now you have to throw it to me and get it by me. Obviously, as I get a little bit older now, and like I've said before, having my kids, having my family, it's kind of switched to where I'm like, not as aggressively hard, you know, it's more of like, hey, bro, like, you know what you're doing, man. Like, come on, dude, lock it in. Like, like, let's go. All right. Like, let's just keep it going. You're talented. You've done it this long. Like, you know how to hit, you know how to play. So for me, mental goes up and down, man. It really does. 
You want to be even keel. When you have your best games, when you have your worst games, you don't want to ride that roller coaster. You don't want to be like that. You want to just stay even keel, stay relaxed, and and just basically be confident and be humble. You don't want to ever go up there and be like, like you know, man, am I? Oh, am I good? Like I feel bad because then you start getting doubts in your head. And when you get doubts in your head, now you're not just competing against the guy. You're competing against your own self. You know, and then your thoughts, like your thoughts control your body. Your mind controls how your body feels. So if your mind, if you keep telling yourself, like, I'm locked in, man. Like, ain't nobody getting me out. Like, I'm ready. I'm here. Like, I came today to play. But for me, I just, I go back to my my couple cues, my couple things. Like I said, like my family, from my parents, my brothers, my sisters, to my kids, my girl, to certain things where I'm like, hey, I'm good. I'm good. Like they, they love me. I have great support. I have, you know, amazing, amazing people off the field to, to help me out and help me deal with this. And it, it's just something that has really helped me in that regard. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from you saying is like, you have a certain mantra that you say to yourself, right? You, you, you get into the zone. So whether it's an affirmation or a mantra or something that you self-created, that's deeply connected to you that helps you kind of like flip the switch, get the mind going so that the body can actually follow suit. And another thing that I'm also hearing from you is like gratitude. You're very much in gratitude of the things around you, the people around you, your support system. And that's huge. You know, a lot of people forget or don't realize how impactful it is to have a sort of like a gratitude ritual or mantra ritual to stay even keeled because you're right. Some one day you might be at the top of the world, and, and you know Boston. You know that you know we're a little spicy over here. <laughs> They'll let you know. So they will tell you like, "Oh, you suck today." Oh, okay, t- tomorrow I love you. <laughs> you know. Yep. Yep. So you can't really get caught up with all of that external chatter, and you really have to be solid in who you are, on and off the field, so that you're not kind of going like you said in those waves. The game being a failure-based game, it teaches you that. It humbles you. It shows you like right away, like, hey, bro, like you're failing. You're failing 70% of the time. And, and that's that's a lot in, in life. If you failed 70% of the time in life, that's tough, right? You're like, man, can I at least get a split 50-50? So 70% is, is a tough one. So I think Baseball really taught me that, and I struggled with it early in my career. From when I was a kid to even in the minor leagues, I, I struggled with failure. I, I I really didn't know how to handle it. I was angry, yard sailing. Like if I had an elbow guard, a helmet, whoo, whoo, my bat, whoo, down the tunnels. Everything's going. Everything's yard sailing out, and it's only the first at-bat of the game. You're like, dang, this guy's got three, four more at-bats. He's going to go, he's going to freaking, he's going to lose his hair. He's going to have gray hairs. This guy's going to age quickly. So for me, like it definitely taught me how to like, just, Hey man, go with it, go with it, relax, be patient, be humble. You know, your time will come. So was there like a turning point when you realized I really have to learn how to level myself? When you become a distraction, that's the biggest turning point. You don't ever want to be a distraction to your team. You don't ever want to be a selfish player. You don't want guys talking about you. That's really the biggest thing. You want to be a good person. And that's kind of like where I've always been that way. I've always felt that way. 
I've always thrown my stuff and did stuff. And it's just because I care so much about the game. And when I don't succeed, I feel like I let myself down. I feel like I let my team down. I feel like, you know, I let a lot of people down and it weighs heavy on me. So I have an outburst. But after enough of those, you have enough talks with some veteran guys. You realize, hey, man, they're starting to take away from the game. Like the guys aren't focusing on the game. Now they're looking at you and being like, look at him. Like, like, come on, bro. Like, he's out here yard selling stuff. So you don't ever want to be a distraction or someone where you kind of just feel like you're sucking the life out of the dugout or out of your team. So for me, that was a big eye opener. And it was like, dang, guys, hey, like, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm working my hardest to get this under control. I love that. Don't be a distraction. And honestly, Alex, it's something a lot of people deal with because especially when you're in your feelings, in therapy world, we call it like you become the drama, right? Everybody has that person in their family where, you know, that one incident, it, it centers around them and then everybody's getting the phone calls. And then, but that also creates a distraction from people working on themselves because now they got to go put out this fire, help this. So I totally understand that. And I love that you're able to come to that realization because now what you're doing is like empathizing with your teammates and then also looking at yourself and saying, okay, well, what can I do to do better, not just for myself, but also for those around me? Because it is a team sport and life is a team sport. Like with our relationships, friendships, all of that deserves its 100% focus. And there's a time and place for everything. And so I'm curious what message you have for those peak performers who are still kind of, you know, trying to figure things out and really both on and off the field, what message would you like to leave for them? The biggest thing is just be yourself, really. Be yourself. Have a couple like points, you know, have a couple things, whether it's a board or a quote or something that gets you back to who you are. You know, for me, like a big quote was my strength coach used to have it in his workout room. And it was anybody can describe you, but only you can define you. Right. It's a big thing for me because everybody would see me from an outside perspective or without getting to know me. They would just see me. And instantly they have their thoughts. They have their, hey man, that guy's not a team player. That guy's selfish. That guy's this, that guy's that. They always had their stuff that they said. So anybody can describe me, but I'm the only one who can like really define myself. Hey, like, you know, you want to talk to me? Like, hey, let's have a one-on-one. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Like get into my mind, understand where I'm coming from. That way you can fully understand what you're seeing. And so like that was a big quote for me that helped me out so much when I was younger. I dealt with it all the time, like character issues, all this stuff. And I was like, bro, how is that possible, man? Like, I feel like when I'm with people or I'm with friends and stuff like that, like I'm a good person. I was like, man, I'm a real big believer in treat people how you want to be treated. It's simple, like treat people with respect to everybody out there, like who struggles with anything, man. Just find out what you love. That's all it is. Like, find out what it is that keeps you going. When baseball's hard and I'm struggling, I think about when I was a kid and playing Little League, playing travel ball and dancing in the outfield. I used to always dance in the outfield. So it's just you got to find the stuff that just makes you feel good, makes you feel, you know, like a kid again. Beautiful. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for being on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Mental fitness is just as important as physical fitness for athletes to reach the top of their game. I loved how Alex described staying in the moment 
when he was on the field. That's a high-pressure situation not everyone can perform in. But our next guest says that we can actually train our minds to better perform under pressure so we can rise to the challenge when life gets stressful. Dr. Amishi Jha is a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Miami. She studies the power of attention in her lab, and she spent years learning how our attention is a superpower. She studied military personnel, firefighters, and medical professionals to understand how they harness the power of attention. In her book, Peak Mind, she has shared how anyone can train their mind's attention for better performance and better peace of mind by using mindfulness techniques. Welcome to the Turning Points Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Amishi, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, happy to. It's great to be here. I am a neuroscientist. And in my lab, we study how people pay attention, meaning how it works in the brain, what makes attention fail, and how we can optimize it with various forms of training. But the one that we study the most often and most prominently, because it actually works the best, is mindfulness training. So the other part of my identity, I guess, and what I do is that I wrote a book called Peak Mind, in which really the intention was to offer everything we've learned in the lab over the last 20 years I've had a lab, because these are things that I think all of us experience. We have a kind of cultural pain point where nobody feels like they can pay attention. But the science says that there are reasons for this and that there are things we can do about it. So that is what I've been up to in my career. I was reading parts of your book and I turned to my partner. I was like, see, because I have issues with attention as well. I was like, see, it's not all my fault. But then I continued reading. I was like, oh, well, I actually can do some work to, <laughs> to make it better. So let's start off with the basics. What is attention and why is it so important to pay attention to your attention? You know, attention, if I asked you what you think it is, I'm assuming that you'd say, but focus. Yeah. Focus is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. And that is a huge part of what attention is. And that's what sort of colloquially we all think of as attention. It's a very, very important brain system. We, we need it for almost every single thing we do. But one thing that may be surprising to you and other people is that it's not just regarding focus on a book you're reading or a conversation you're having. There are other aspects of this brain system that end up being important for really every single thing we do. To kind of back up a little bit, attention is really a fuel, just like fuel we put in our vehicles. And this fuel allows us to do the main things that we do as human beings. So just to break it down, one of the main things attention allows us to do is think. So the idea of having a thought pop into your mind and then follow it by another thought and another thought, kind of hyperlinking thought to thought to thought into what we might call a train of thought. Well, those hyperlinks are attention. It allows us to connect idea after idea to hopefully have some kind of cohesive understanding of what the mind is experiencing or thinking right now. So thinking is just so important to obviously everything we do, and attention is necessary to do that. But it's not just about the thinking, and this is where people are a little bit surprised. So the other two very important things that attention is important for and really serves as a fuel for are feeling and connecting. So by feeling, what I mean is having the ability to experience emotion. We would not be able to experience emotion unless we had attention. Now, sometimes it feels like our emotions can grab us, like, oh my gosh, I guess I'm really angry or I'm really upset or I feel sad right now. 
But that recognition of the emotion being experienced is what attention allows us to do. The other really important thing that attention does as it relates to feeling is regulating emotion so that we have sort of a proportionate response, right? So you spill a cup of coffee, you might be irritated, but probably you're not going to just start running out of the room screaming and yelling. I mean, that would be an overreaction. To ensure that the experience and expression of emotion is appropriate for the context, that's what we need attention for. So thinking, feeling, and then for connecting, in some sense, if we think about attention, it's our highest expression of care, concern, and the capacity to collaborate with other people. If we don't direct our attention toward another, the conversation is not going to go so well. The ability to work together is not going to go so well. And attention allows us to not only connect with others, which I know is the kind of broader topic of our conversation, our connecting with ourselves and our attention in these kind of high performance settings, but for all of these things, whether it's for connecting, feeling, or thinking, when attention is not available, when the fuel is just not there, your gas tank's not empty, things can go terribly, horribly, badly. I love how you summed it up because we do just think attention is just one thing and it's there's so many elements to it. And when we spoke with Boston Red Sox outfielder Alex Verdugo, he mentioned some of these things without actually mentioning it. Just the fact that when he was in a high pressure situation and he would get upset and angry, he noticed how doing that really impacted his team negatively. And so he had to make some attention shifts, right? How he's connecting with his team, had to regulate his emotions. And then on top of that, he also had to figure out how to really get himself mentally prepared. Can you talk a little bit more about the high pressure groups that you work with and how pressure and stress affects their attention and performance? Yeah, I love the way you connected it to your conversation with Alex, because I think he so beautifully describes the real success story of a peak mind. He's able to not just be an amazing athlete, but he has to have a mind that matches those physical capabilities. And if he doesn't, it's not going to go well, no matter how great he is at doing the other things he can do kind of on his own. So the way that I think about high pressure situations, and yes, most of the groups that we work with are a different kind of pressure, not necessarily athletic performance, but first responders, medical and nursing professionals, and military service members. So for them, performance matters just like it does for elite athletes. But for them, it could be life or death when you aren't paying attention appropriately or your attention may lapse. So it ends up that we need attention. Like I said, we need to be fully fueled up so that our thinking is crisp and clear, our emotions are regulated, our ability to connect and be cohesive with those around us is optimized. But those same circumstances, high demand, high pressure, deplete and degrade attention. It's like they empty the gas tank. And it's not just stress. It's actually three sort of biggies that I really think about as kryptonite for attention. So stress, for sure, sort of this notion of perceived stress or distress. My demands outpace my capacity to meet them is a big one. Threat. And this could be threat, not just like your physical safety, but your reputation, your sense of justice, your sense of what is morally appropriate. There are different ways we can experience threat, all of which will unfortunately degrade attention. So stress, threat, and then poor mood or negative mood. And if you think about it, these are obviously overlapping. In the circumstances of high-performance athletes, there's a threat because you want to maintain your ability to be at the top of your game. There's stress because that pressure feels like it's a lot. The negative mood could be what you just did before this moment. Maybe you messed up a play or the team is down or there's some challenge within the team, etc. So all of these tend to create sort of the perfect storm that actually starts to 
empty that gas tank. And at the same time, the thing that's going to allow you to perform the best under those circumstances is your attention. So when you need it most, it's least available to you. And, you know, working with the kind of groups that we work with, we could see this over and over again. The circumstances of high stress are going to deplete attention and there is no room to mess up. You can't. So that's the problem space that actually got me really curious in my own lab's work of what can we do about it? I mean, if we know that attention is necessary, but it's unavailable when we need it most, how do we get out of this terrible spiral? And I think in the story that Alex tells is essentially about his own ability to overcome some of these challenges, we see that. He had to change the way he oriented to his experience. He had to change the way he used his attention and so that those high-pressure, high-stress circumstances didn't spend it all out so that he had nothing left, so that when the clarity of mind of what to do regarding you know, his actions in the team or the ability to regulate his emotions or to have this cohesion with other teammates, you need to have access to the resources that would allow him to do that. And that's frankly where mindfulness training comes into my lab because we saw it as a route by which we might train attention and strengthen it so that it's available to us no matter the circumstances. So can you speak more a little bit about what do you mean by like training our attention? Yeah, training attention, right? So what does that even mean? Well, the first thing is that we have to start with the nature of the mind. And the nature of the mind is to be distracted which sounds a little bit weird. What do you mean it means your nature of the mind is to be distracted? Now, 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not in the task at hand. And that's the baseline. That we know from many, many studies that have basically said, no matter what, if you ask people where their attention is, half the time they're going to say, no, not in what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's the nature of the mind. Now, if we have that known, we can say, okay, well, what happens to that kind of baseline over high stress? Well, things get worse our mind is even less likely to be present to what we are doing. And that can have catastrophic consequences as we've been talking about. So what happens to attention when we're distracted and we're not there 50% of the time? Well, frankly, a lot of the research is saying, because we now can really ask these questions, what we're doing when we're not in the moment present to the task at hand is something called mind wandering. Now, I don't mean that as just like going for a walk and letting your mind wander. This is sort of a technical term. When we say mind wandering, we're having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. So there is something we are to be doing, whether it's writing an email, having a conversation, reading a book, and our mind is somewhere else. And where do we go? Well, where we go when we mind wander is away from the present moment. Now, I think of this sort of like an MP3 player. We are in rewind so that we're thinking about the past reflecting on things that have happened, or we're in fast forward thinking about the next thing. I mean, just think about the last time, I know we've all had this experience, we get to the bottom of the page reading something, and you're like, have no idea where the heck you've been, but you know, because your eyes have met the bottom of the page, oops, no idea, I got to start over again. If you just take an extra second and think, okay, where was I right before this moment? Can you maybe capture it? Guaranteed, it's going to be about the past or the future. If we have a distractible mind, if we have a mind that wanders to the past or the future, and that tends to add to our experience of stress and worry and problems in our performance, we need a training solution that can address that. And mindfulness really is the opposite of mind-wandering in that it has to do with keeping the button and this MP3 player of the mind right on play. So you're not in rewind or fast forward, you're in the moment, you are experiencing the moment-to-moment unfolding of your life. You feel like there's more spaciousness because frankly, you're recouping your attention back. It's not lost in thought about the past or worried about the future. It's available to you so that when something problematic happens in your present moment experience and strong emotions arise, you have the capacity to say, hmm, 
strong emotion is here. Maybe I don't need to express or experience it or feed it in some way. And I certainly may not want to act upon it. I may want to have more control regarding my actions. And we've tested many, many different things to see how we can help attention. But this really met this pain point of a wandering mind. Even in my own journey, I turned towards mindfulness as well. And the result of that was that I was less reactive and there was a spaciousness between my ability to understand what was happening and my response to that situation. I mean, it wasn't 100% all the time, but there's definitely this, this relationship between your reactivity, right? And not getting really caught up in a tornado of your emotions. And so I love the idea that you can train your attention because I still have friends to this day. Oh, it doesn't work for me. And it's because you do it for like once or twice. It's not going to work. A lot of people say, well, I can't do it. Train my attention. Like my mind just keeps wandering. Yes, that's the nature of the mind. And when you begin a mindfulness practice, what you're doing is repeatedly practicing, focusing on something. And usually we have like the breath is a very handy target. Not because we're really manipulating the breath. We shouldn't be. We're just observing its occurrence. And we're noticing mind wandering. And it's not the project to never mind wander. If you hold that up, of course, you'd want to run away from anything called meditation or mindfulness because you're like, that's impossible. And I would say it's totally impossible. Don't even think about doing that. So when I think about training attention, it's actually three things. It's focusing, setting your mind to have a target for where you want your attention to be, noticing, being aware of where your attention is moment by moment, and many times it's not going to be where you want to focus, and then redirecting it back with a kind of steadiness and a reliability to get back on track without beating yourself up about the fact that you wandered away. So oftentimes my military colleagues will refer to this sort of focus, notice, redirect with mindfulness practices as push-ups for the mind. And I think it's a really nice way to think about it. We're exercising the mind and we're doing it repeatedly and we can apply that strength of attention to everything we do. Oh, I love how you said focus, notice, and redirect. Because sometimes it's really hard for people to conceptualize what it means to do mindfulness training. How does mindfulness impact the way that when we're in those high peak situations, you know, for a surgeon that has to do eight hours of surgery, an athlete that has to be in the game, what does it, I guess, cognitively do to a brain and to the body? Right. Great question. The first thing to say is in those circumstances, performance matters. So we have to be in the moment. We can't be thinking about the past or the future. The moment is right now that you have to be there. So what gets in the way typically? If you talk to elite athletes, you're thinking about the next thing. The mindfulness training allows you to do this is to not just have the intention to be in the present moment, but to have trained yourself to be able to be there. But also holding this broader awareness, something we call meta-awareness of what is unfolding right now. It's almost like taking a step back and taking it in. So you've got to have both of these you know, metaphors that I have for attention. It's like a flashlight. You've got to direct it very, very pointedly to the thing you want to be focusing on. But you also have to keep sort of a floodlight to be aware of what's going on broadly. And both of those together can help you not fly away from the moment, but actually stay in the present moment. It seems like a whole lot of nothing. But in some sense, what you're doing is you're always a mission to find out where the flashlight is. And that's one of the practices that I talk about in my book is find your flashlight. So it's not about always just pointing the flashlight. If you don't know where your attention is, there's no chance you can get it back on track. Now, could you clarify for our audience uh, the idea of the flashlight versus the floodlight? So in some sense, the flashlight is something formally called the brain's orienting system. And it really is like an actual flashlight that you use. So if you're in a darkened room or a darkened path, what a handy tool to have. Because wherever it is that you direct that thing, 
you're going to have crisper, clearer information. And where you're not pointing it, you don't get a lot of information. It kind of fades away into the background. And the floodlight is something we call the alerting system. And this is, you know, another way to think about this system and the term alert gives it away. It's like if you're driving down the road or walking down the street and you see sort of a flashing yellow light, it could be near a construction site or, you know, something's going on, you just see flashing. It means pay attention, but not in this narrow, crisp way. It's like broadly be receptive right now to what's happening around you. Not thinking about the past or the future, but right now. One of the things that when we spoke with Alex Verdugo and he did an internal flashlight and there's something that he says right before a game and he didn't call it a mantra, but essentially it's kind of is a mantra. He'll say before a game, he'll tell himself he was locked in and meaning that he's confident and ready to leave it all on the field. And after going through your book, it definitely was him finds flashlight. Does that sound about right? Definitely also being aware of the goals that he has for the next Thing that he's going to do. And that's actually a third system called executive functioning. So it's sort of aligning all of his different ways of paying attention to best serve the moment. And most of us don't feel like we have that level of control with our minds. And for an elite athlete, they know how to control their body. They know how to motorically function well. They know the ins and outs of their craft. But to add to that, to advantage yourself with more knowledge of how your mind works and how to train it to work best when you need it most. Very, very powerful. Beautiful. Now, Mishi, is there anything else that you would like to share with us to help better understand your research? I think kind of broadly speaking, I'd say we all understand the pain of not having your attention available to you. We know that feeling like, geez, just come on, mind cooperate. And what I want to just offer people is that you don't need to just take it, meaning you don't have to just continue your life feeling like you'll never have your mind to yourself and it's going to feel frazzled and captured away by your social media feed or the challenges and pressures of life. That is the nature of life, but there is something you can do about it. And I think what modern science is now telling us, especially the brain science of mindfulness, is that the mind, like the body, needs training daily to stay fit. And now we're talking about psychological health and psychological fitness just like we talk about physical fitness. And the exciting thing, and from my point of view, that I've been able to capture in my book is the journey of how to train it and give people the tools and the skills and the practices that they can start doing daily to help themselves. And it doesn't have to be for hours and weeks on end. You don't have to go away to a retreat or be a monk in a cave or mountaintop to benefit. We're finding that as little as 12 minutes a day of a whole suite of mindfulness practices that talk about the flashlight and the floodlight, can help us get more control and ownership of our attention so that it feels like it's working with us and for us to enjoy and lead fulfilling lives. When you say it that way, 12 minutes, I'm sure we can find 12 minutes in a day to begin practicing our mind and training our attention so that we can, you know, be the best versions of ourselves. That's my offer. Yeah. It's like, give me your daily dozen. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mishi, for being on the show today and sharing your story with us and your research. Your book is incredible. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of that book and begin training their minds. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Now that we have a broader understanding of how our attention works, we can better understand how to pay attention to our attention. And that's what mindfulness is all about. To me, the big takeaways were, first, 
Find your happy place. Think of the people in your life who make you feel loved and cared for. For Alex Verdugo, that was his family, his children, the people who know and love him through the ups and downs. And last, focus, notice, and redirect. These are the mental push-ups for the mind. Pay attention to an anchor. That could be your breath or sound in your environment. And when your mind starts to wander, and it will, notice that your thoughts have drifted and simply bring your attention back to that anchor. Whether or not mindfulness practice helps you become an elite athlete, it will help calm your mind and bring more color into the moment. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Amishi Jha's research in her book, Peak Mind. You can also participate in a mindfulness challenge that takes just 12 minutes a day. Head to point32health.org forward slash peak mind challenge and visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. To hear more stories of turning points, join us for our next episode. We'll talk about parenting under pressure and why parents need to put their mental health first. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Anne Fuse, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Michael Aquino. And special thanks to Point32 Health and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Point32 Health is committed to connecting the community to personalized solutions that empower healthier living. <laughs>